You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by beginning to examine the doctrine of the infallibility of the Bible. Dr. Spencer, I suspect that this doctrine is unfamiliar to most of our listeners. Why is this topic important? It's important because true Christianity stands or falls with the truthfulness of the Bible. By true Christianity, I mean a Christianity that has the power to save a person from eternal hell and bring him into the very presence of God in eternal heaven. That's why I often refer to biblical Christianity by which I simply mean the true Christian religion as revealed by God, in distinction from all man-made variations and impostors. The bottom line is that if the Bible is not completely and totally the very word of God, and therefore completely infallible, our faith is built on the shifting sand of subjectivism and is bound to unravel one doctrine at a time, which is precisely what we see happening in the church today. That's a very strong statement, and I look forward to seeing how you back it up. Where should we begin? Let's begin, as usual, by looking at what the Bible itself says. In 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, the Apostle Paul wrote that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, end quote. The Greek word translated as God-breathed by the NIV is theopneustos, which literally means breathed out by God, which is how the English Standard Version renders it. The King James Version says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which is why you hear people say that the Bible is inspired by God. By which they don't mean that God gave the person the idea or encouragement to write which is what we usually do mean by the word inspire. Yeah, that's right. We can talk about some actor or musician giving an inspired performance, but that's an entirely different usage of the word. That's why I don't like to say the scriptures are inspired by God. It's too easily misunderstood. The NIV and ESV translations are better here. The Greek says that all scripture is breathed out by God. The idea is that the Bible, while written by human authors, is uniquely the very words of God himself. We discussed this in session 27 when we examined the authority of the Bible, and the authority of the Bible is inextricably linked to its infallibility. But the bottom line is that the Bible is completely infallible because God is infallible and he is the author of the Bible. It'd be good to define precisely what you mean when you say that the Bible is infallible. The word infallible means not capable of being in error. So it's a stronger statement than saying the Bible is inerrant, which is, of course, also true. When I say that the Bible is infallible, I mean that because it is the very words of God, who himself is the perfect, all-knowing, sovereign creator of all things, and who cannot lie, the Bible, in its original manuscripts, is incapable of being an error. These original manuscripts are called the autographs, but we don't have them in our possession. So how can the doctrine of infallibility be important if it only applies to the autographs? As we noted back in session 7, there's a science called textual criticism, which allows us to reconstruct what the autographs said based on the copies we have available. This science is used on other ancient documents as well. We covered this topic in some detail in Session 7, and I'm only going to summarize the argument here. 
but it necessarily begins by examining the copies we have of the original documents, because if these copies were not complete, or if they were corrupted too badly, textual criticism would yield a very uncertain or incomplete result. In the case of the Bible, however, we have very good and complete copies. The Old Testament has been preserved almost perfectly through the millennia, which we know because the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1947, gave us copies of much of the Old Testament from before the time of Christ, and they agree to an astonishing degree with the next oldest extant copy we have, which is from about 1000 AD. With regard to the New Testament, it is by leaps and bounds the best attested book from antiquity, bar none, as even non-Christian scholars will admit. All right, so we have really good copies of the original documents. What then is this science of textual criticism? Let me repeat what I said in Session 7 about it, because it is critically important to our present discussion. E.J. Young, in his book, Thy Word is Truth, provides a marvelous example of how textual criticism can work. He says to consider a schoolteacher who writes a letter to the President of the United States. To her great joy, she receives a personal reply. It's a treasure which she shares with her pupils by dictating the letter to them. And after collecting the assignment, which gives her 30 imperfect copies of the letter, she loses the original. The question is, can she reconstruct it from the 30 imperfect copies? And the answer is, of course, yes. With a very high degree of certainty, she can reconstruct the original letter. The different copies will contain spelling errors, missed or added words, and so on. But these errors will be different in the different copies. So by comparing the 30 copies she can surely correct these errors and arrive at a very good copy of the original. There is, of course, more to it, but that gives you a good idea. When this technique is applied to the Bible, we're able to reconstruct with very high confidence what the autographs said. And unlike most ancient documents, we don't have to fill in holes where there's material missing. When you combine our many different manuscripts, we have reliable, complete copies of the entire Old and New Testaments. All right, so we have very good copies in the original languages of the autographs, but what about the translations that most of us read? Well, first let me note that the New Testament quotes from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was in use at the time of Christ. So clearly translations in and of themselves are not a problem. Also, as you would expect, some of them are better than others. Translation is never exact, and it isn't neutral either. The particular theological biases of the translator can significantly affect the final result. That's why we should read different translations to find out what the differences are, and then also examine the theological biases of the translators. You should also look in good commentaries that go back to the original language and discuss the reasons for various choices made during the translation process. That sounds like a lot of work. How can a layperson with limited time and knowledge be sure that he or she is getting to the right answer? Well, first of all, pray. (laughs) Then you trust God to guide you. And hopefully, if you have found a good church led by pious and learned men, you can ask for their help. We use the 1984 New International Version, or NIV Bible, in our church, but it's no longer readily available, and the newer versions of the NIV have been corrupted by liberal theology. So if you're looking to purchase a new English-language Bible, I would recommend the English Standard Version, or ESV. The New King James Version is also good. Uh, The Old King James is still good, too, but most modern readers find the English in it a bit difficult to understand. 
Finally, it's very important to note that the basic message of salvation is so clearly taught in the scriptures that even a poor translation is sufficient to bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You may get some confusion on secondary points, but the basic message is there. And if a person is born again, then he is guaranteed to have the Holy Spirit to guide him as he seeks to learn God's truth more completely. That's right. If you've been born again, then you are never truly alone in your search for God's truth. That doesn't mean that you don't have to put forth the effort and be careful, but God will guide you. And if you're reading your Bible, God will also use that to help you recognize whether or not you're in a good church. We have a mutual friend who was saved and started attending a Jehovah's Witness church, which is definitely not a true Christian church. But he was reading the Bible and discovered for himself, guided by the Holy Spirit, that that church did not truly stand on the Word of God. So he left and found a good church. Okay, you've established that the Bible claims to be the very words of God, which makes it infallible, and you've argued that the copies we possess in our own language are extremely good representations of what the original documents said. So now let me go back to your opening statement. You said that if we give up on the infallibility of the Bible, our faith will unravel one doctrine at a time. Can you defend that statement? Sure. If the Bible had errors in it, how would we determine where they are? The only answer is that we would have to look at human reason and scholarship to see if what the Bible said is true. That may sound like a plausible approach, but if you think about it for a bit, you can see that it's fatally flawed. First of all, it means our ultimate standard for truth is human reason. But every rational person admits that human reason is fallible and human knowledge is limited. So our conclusions are necessarily conditional and subject to later revision. Can you give us an example of what you mean? Sure. Prior to the 1990s, many scholars taught that King David was a purely mythical character. But as we noted in Session 19, the discovery of the Tel Dan Stella and other evidence now makes it clear that King David was a real person in history. If we subject the Bible to our current understanding of history and science, our ultimate authority is really human reason, not the Word of God. And that is shifting sand. It really leaves us with subjectivism because we have to decide which parts of the Bible to believe and which not to believe. As I just noted, while it may sound reasonable to do that for historical issues, such as the question of whether or not King David was a real historical figure, that really is not a solid foundation. In addition, it is clearly not a reasonable approach when it comes to what the Bible tells us about God and how to be saved. On what basis are we going to decide which statements are true and which are not? If the Bible cannot be relied upon completely, we are left with our own subjective ideas about God and salvation. Perhaps another example would be useful. Well, consider the fundamental question of God's nature. The Bible tells us that there is one God, but that he exists in three persons. On what basis, outside of the Bible, can someone say whether that teaching is true or not? There are many other doctrines that are similar, where besides the Bible can we look to see whether an eternal heaven or hell exists? What about how we can escape the punishment of hell? These things are only revealed to us in the Bible. If it isn't infallible, then we can't possibly know that what it teaches us about these most important issues is right. Yeah, I see your point. There's a lot of confusion in the modern church world because so many people have given up on the infallibility of the Bible. As a result, people question whether there's really an eternal heaven or an eternal hell, or whether Jesus Christ truly rose from the dead, 
or even whether or not Jesus Christ is truly God or was born of a virgin. Let's examine just one common example. Many people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians will say that they don't believe in eternal hell. And the argument they will give virtually always goes something like this. God is love, and it wouldn't be loving for God to punish people for all eternity, so I can't believe that God would do that. Yeah, I've heard similar arguments. Even if the argument is far more sophisticated than I've made it sound, it still boils down to human theorizing about what God would or would not do. But if we believe the Bible to truly be God's infallible word, then the question can only be answered by looking at the Bible. And when you do that, the answer is quite clear. The infallibility of the Bible is of central importance because it establishes the only firm foundation for our faith. Once we have come to the realization that the Word of God is infallible, then all speculation and human philosophizing go away. And the only question we need to ask on any issue we're interested in is what does the Word of God say? And hence the title and subject of this podcast. Precisely. But I really want to emphasize how important this issue is and establish clearly in our listeners' minds that if they are Christians, the Word of God is not only their absolute authority, it is also infallible. The book I quoted from earlier, Thy Word is Truth, by the great Old Testament scholar E.J. Young, was written precisely because he saw this issue as central to our faith. And that book was written in 1957. Absolutely, and the problem is much worse now. Young states his purpose in writing the book clearly on page 7. He wrote that his purpose was, quote, to acquaint the intelligent layman with the biblical doctrine of inspiration and to convince him of its importance, end quote. I'm going to be using his book quite a bit in our discussion on this topic, and I highly recommend it to our listeners. It's still readily available in print from many sources. And the debate over this topic also led in 1978 to a large number of biblical scholars producing the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. That's right, and I think the opening paragraph of that statement would be good to read. It says, quote, The authority of Scripture is a key issue for the Christian Church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. That is a wonderful statement and a good place to end for today. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to what does the word say dot org. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the infallibility of the Bible, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.